invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our text today, as it's found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. <clears throat> our text is in verse 25, but let's uh, begin reading in verse 24. <clears throat> Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. Judaism, since the first century, is still waiting for the appearing of the Messiah. They deny that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They deny that his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection were foretold in the Old Testament, as in Isaiah 53, or even here. In Daniel chapter 9. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, you'll recall that the soldiers that guarded the tomb of the Lord Jesus, they witnessed a, a great earthquake, and an angel appeared and rolled the stone that was over the entrance of Christ's tomb, rolled it away, and sat upon the stone. And they were so fearful. Uh, they fell as dead before this angel and what had just occurred. And when they awakened, they ran to Jerusalem and, and to the chief priests and told them what had happened. And rather than, again, believing all the prophecies of the Old Testament and believing that Jesus was the Messiah, who had been raised from the dead, they, they conspired and bribed the soldiers to, to carry the lie that his disciples stealthily, secretly stole the body of the Lord Jesus, moved the, tomb, uh, the stone from the tomb without awakening the soldiers, and then, as well, stole the body. And so that was the story that was circulated, but it tells the, the extent to which, again, Jews at that time, and even presently, continue to believe a lie that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah. They continue to wait for his coming, who was prophesied to come here in Daniel 9, verses 24 and 25, at a specified time. And who was prophesied even in the next verse, which we'll consider next Lord's Day, that he would be cut off in death as a criminal. Why can't Jews, in general today, in the past and in today, why can't they understand that the Messiah, the anointed Prince, Jesus Christ, has already come and fulfilled the prophecies that we are reading about in Daniel chapter 9. Well, Paul tells us why. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, he says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. The reason they can't see all the prophecies, all the various places in the Old Testament that refer to Christ, Messiah, 
And the realization of that in the New Testament is that their minds have a veil over it so they, God, by way of his judgment, has brought darkness to them and unbelief upon them. Praise be to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus that that's not always going to be the case. There is coming a time in which that blindness, according to the scripture, will be removed by God and Israel as a nation, will be granted repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul refers to this in Romans 11, verses 25 through 27 where he says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Forever? No. Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Until the fullness of, of the Gentile nations come in. So at the time that the Gentile nations in the future are brought to Christ. Israel, likewise, will be brought to Christ, Paul says. And then he continues, And so all Israel shall be saved, that is, saved as a nation. As it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. The Lord Jesus, through Paul, says, that is why we are to continue to pray for the salvation of Israel as a people, as a nation. God's covenant of grace shall overcome their unbelief, their rebellion, and their hatred for Jesus, who is Messiah, the Prince. So as we continue to work our way through Daniel chapter 9, we will be focusing today in verse 25 on two questions. First question is, when was the command to restore and build Jerusalem? And the second question, when did Messiah the Prince make himself known publicly? So our first question, when was the command to restore and build Jerusalem? The angel Gabriel gave to Daniel, you'll recall in Daniel 9.24, six events or purposes determined by God to bring to pass concerning his people and concerning the city of Jerusalem, within a specified period of 70 weeks, or 490 consecutive years. These six events or purposes of God, as we've already noted by way of review, were fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus Christ in the 70th week, the last seven years, which are not... Uh, separated from the previous 69 weeks, but follow immediately upon the end of the 69 weeks, the 70th week. And this 70th week, as we've already noted, would reveal the transgression of all transgressions committed by Israel. That is the hatred, the rebellion, the crucifixion of Messiah the Prince. That they would cut him off. But the 70th week would also reveal the death of all deaths. Not only the transgression of all transgressions, but the death of all deaths to put away the sin of God's people, whether in Israel or whether in the nations. That is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. But when would Messiah the Prince reveal himself to Israel. Well, that is the amazing revelation that we find in Daniel 9.25. We find the answer to that question. When would 
Messiah, the Prince, reveal himself to his people. The angel Gabriel reveals both the starting point, uh, in Latin that's called the terminus a quo, and the ending point, that's in Latin again, terminus a quem. So Gabriel here reveals both the starting point of the 70 weeks as being from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. And then as we will consider the second question, he reveals when the first 69 weeks will be completed. At what event will 69 weeks to be followed then by the 70th week? Well, there are three prominent starting points, possible starting points for the 70 weeks here referred to that conservative biblical scholars, both past and present, will usually select from among three possibilities. The first one is the edict given by Cyrus in about the year 538 to 537. And that we find in Ezra, that edict in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, where it says, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and hath charged me to build him a house in, at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so again, the prophecy, likewise, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, it speaks of Cyrus, and it speaks of, this is um, hundreds of years before uh, the actual fulfillment, but it says, and it even identifies who would uh, rebuild Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, and it says, uh, That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Likewise, in Isaiah forty-five thirteen, another prophecy concerning Cyrus. I have raised him, that is Cyrus, up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. So uh, this uh, edict, the first among three uh, possibilities here, this edict of, uh, of Cyrus uh, certainly seems to have its strengths. And uh, uh, both in the decree of Cyrus as well as what is prophesied in Isaiah about what Cyrus would do. And so is this the fulfillment? Is this where the 70 weeks of Daniel begin with this in uh, this edict by Cyrus in 538 to 537 B.C.? Well, as with many positions and all of the positions, the three positions, I think they all have strengths, uh, but they also have weaknesses. And so what are the objections uh, that might be offered to this being the edict where we begin the 70 weeks, counting the 70 weeks, uh, the 490 years that are given to us by Gabriel in Daniel 9, uh, 24 and 25. Well, first of all, uh, the chronology does not add up 
and bringing one to Messiah the Prince. For example, if this edict was given in 538 to 537 BC, then you go 69 weeks uh, to, uh, uh, which again it says, uh, the 69 weeks, seven and 62 weeks, total of 69 weeks unto Messiah, uh, the Prince. But if you take from that time, 538 to 537, and go 483 consecutive years into the future, that brings one to about 55, 54 BC, about 50 years before Christ uh, even um, is born, um, let alone begins his ministry. So that, that I believe, is a, is a problem with, uh, with the chronology, uh, with this first option. The other objection is often um, given is that it doesn't, in the actual edict of Cyrus and Ezra 1, verses 2 through 3, it does not actually mention the building of the city, but only the building of the temple. But, again, I don't think that that second um, objection is, is a very strong objection at all um, because again the promise or the prophecy said that he would both build the city and, and the temple. Uh, so I, I think that that is implied probably in the de decree or edict by Cyrus even though he only mentions the temple he probably again that there was likely during that time, restoring of homes, building of homes, uh, restoring of other buildings, uh, perhaps going on subsequent uh, to that time of, of this edict given by Cyrus. Well, how do, again, conservative uh, biblical uh, scholars um, deal with this, particularly the chronology question that ends up uh, about 50 years before Christ is even born. How, how do they deal with, those, with that particular uh, objection? Well, some conservative biblical scholars uh, number, uh, look at the, the years that are spoken of here, uh, the uh, seven weeks and the 62 weeks, total of 69 weeks. Uh, they look at those as being figurative, and not literal, uh, and so they they basically say it's it's not that important whether or not chronologically that it actually brings us to the time of Christ because those numbers are are, are not intended to be literal but figurative. What's important is that we have the right uh, time, the right event, when. The 490 years began, and the right event uh, that ends, uh, that brings us up to the beginning of the last week, where 483 years have passed, and brings us to the final week. So they would say that's what's important, not the chronology, um, but rather the, the the events. But I would I would submit, and I'd offer. Uh, that uh, just as the prophecy that Daniel was looking at at the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, which is the fulfillment of the realization of the 70 years of desolation and, and time in which Israel would be in captivity, in Babylonian captivity, as Daniel was contemplating, he was looking this over, uh, he, didn't see, he didn't think in terms of, well, those could be figurative years uh, that uh, God's talking about. He understood them to be actual calendar years. And so I don't think that uh, taking this, uh, uh, the context in which we find this uh, 70 weeks of Daniel, 490 years I don't think that it would be 
the strongest argument to, to make to, that those are figurative years in light of the fact that God has just revealed that to Daniel that the 70 years of Babylonian captivity are coming to an end, which were not figurative years. Other conservative biblical scholars um, who adopt this as the starting point, that is the Edict of Cyrus in uh, 538 to 537 BC, they make the case that the chronology used by nearly all biblical scholars, past and present, uh, is the wrong chronology. Uh, is based upon the canon of Ptolemy, uh, which canon uh, basically identifying a, a chronology of kings in Babylon, kings in Persia, uh, that those particular dates that are given to those kings uh, were wrong, they're contrary the argument would run. They're contrary to the biblical chronology. If we simply use the scripture, they're contrary to the biblical chronology. Basically, they would argue that the canon of Ptolemy includes more years for the Persian kings than the biblical calendar. Actually, 152 more years uh, in the canon of Ptolemy than, than the scriptural calendar. And that when the calendar is used according to the scripture, that it actually then takes one up to the baptism of Christ. So again, that, that's a, a, that, that is uh, how conservative biblical sum, and again, I would have to say, that is a very, very small minority that would hold that particular view about the, uh, the canon of Ptolemy not being one that should be used uh, and uh, there being a different uh, chronology uh, given in the scripture. That's a, a minority position among conservative biblical scholars from both the past uh, basically, as far as you want uh, to go back, uh, 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 but in early uh, church history, as well as moving forward uh, through the medieval period, coming into likewise uh, the Reformation period, the, uh, the majority, vast majority of biblical scholars did follow the chronology of the canon of Ptolemy. Uh, and so uh, that, again, would, if that is true, that would still leave uh, the ending of the 483 years, the first 69 weeks, 50 years shy of Jesus Christ. So I'm trying to, again, just share with you the strengths and the weaknesses of, of some, in, in just a few words. Now, I won't mention, there was also an edict by King Darius that's mentioned in Ezra 6, but I don't mention that because it was simply reissuing the same edict that was given originally by Cyrus. So I don't mention that as a separate edict. So the second uh, possibility uh, is uh, an edict given by Artaxerxes. Now these, again, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, these, uh, Darius, these are Persian uh, uh, rulers. And so here we find uh, that uh, actually there were two edicts, uh, we'll look at both of these, uh, given by King Artaxerxes. And so the second possibility that we're going to look at is the first edict given by Artaxerxes. And that was given in 458 uh, to 457 BC. And that is found in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26. I won't uh, read, it's an extended passage. I won't, I won't read that at this time. You can read that for yourself. But uh, this edict was given 
by King Artaxerxes to Ezra uh, as he was sent to Jerusalem with a number of the Jews. Again, that edict tends to focus more upon the building of the temple. But it also mentions the restoring of judges and uh, the restoring of magistrates, the restoring of courts, which implies that if you're restoring these offices uh, to in the civil realm, as well as in the ecclesiastical realm, and if people are returning to Jerusalem, they've got to be, have some place to live, that there was likely, again, building going on during this period of time, even if it's not specifically identified uh, in the edict of Artaxerxes, that, that one has to, I think, assume that people weren't living for all these years uh, out on the ground, but that they were building homes for themselves. In fact, we have uh, evidence to that effect, which I'll uh, share in a moment. But also, you're going to have courts, you're going to have magistrates, you're going to have judges, probably going to be building, again, restoring those buildings that were originally used uh, for um, uh, these courts as well. We find in Ezra 4.12 that the enemies of the Jews during this time, this very time, they accused the Jews of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem in Ezra 4.12. They say, Be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come into Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city, and have set up the walls thereof and joined the foundations. So at least the enemies were saying they're rebuilding the city at this very time. So even if in the edict uh, given by Artaxerxes doesn't specifically mention rebuilding of the city, nevertheless, uh, that probably was going on during this period of time. We also see that Ezra praises God at this time, that God has given to them, he says, a wall. Perhaps the beginning of a wall, maybe not the completion of a wall, but a, but a wall in Jerusalem and Judea in Ezra 9.9. The prophet Haggai, which, who was prophesying at this particular period of time as well, uh, he notes that uh, the people uh, of, uh, that were in Jerusalem were more concerned with build, building their own homes than they were in building and completing the temple of God. So again, I think that there is evidence to demonstrate that, that the edict by Artaxerxes in 458 to 457 that there was other than construction, other than um, endeavors to complete the temple, that there was also endeavor to, to build in Jerusalem, to restore in various ways, at least the beginning of the restoration in Jerusalem. And that's one of the objections offered against this view is that it, it doesn't, the edict doesn't specifically mention uh, the building or restoring of the city. As Daniel 9.25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. And so though the edict doesn't specifically mention the physical building I mean, it does specifically mention the physical building of, of Jerusalem. That may have been happening. Uh, that may have been going on. And it would appear from the evidence I've just given that, that, that it actually was happening at that time.
So if this is the starting point, uh, the first edict given by Artaxerxes in about 458 to 457 BC, then carrying that forward 483 years, uh, that one would arrive at about 26 to 27 AD, which was the time of the baptism of the Lord Jesus. The third option is the second edict given by Artaxerxes, and this was given to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, and the, the year of uh, 445 to 444 BC, that period of time. So uh, about uh, 13 to 14 years after the previous edict uh, given by Artaxerxes, this, this second edict, which is the third option. And uh, we find that edict mentioned in Nehemiah 2, verses five through six, or permission given by uh, Artaxerxes, Nehemiah actually is giving to the king the things he would like to do and he wants to do, and the king agrees to do so. But we read there, I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. But Nehemiah says that I may build it, that I may build it. And so, the king supplies building materials later on uh, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 uh, in order to see that realized. So the strength of this particular position is that it specifically mentions building the gates uh, later on as well in the, in the chapter of uh, the wall, uh, similar to what is stated in Daniel 9.25. However, the weakness of this starting point is that if you, again, start with 445 to 444 BC and then move forward 69 weeks, 483 consecutive years, it takes you a number of years, a few years past the death of Jesus Christ. It overshoots the Messiah, the Prince, by a, a few years to 38 to 39 AD, most conservative biblical scholars see the death of Christ somewhere between 30 and 32, outside 33 AD. So this is taking um, Messiah the Prince after his death, uh, 38 to 39 AD. So. Uh, anywhere from, from uh, uh, nine years uh, to possibly uh, five years uh, from after the death of Christ. So that's a problem. Uh, it overshoots Messiah the Prince. How do, how do those who hold this particular position uh, respond to the fact that it overshoots Messiah the Prince by a few years. And I'm, I really struggled in this sermon as to how much information to give because um, it's always difficult when one gets too technical uh, with regard to information that uh, basically, you know, um, uh, people um, kind of go off uh, in their minds uh, not, you know, listening as closely perhaps, but I, I really think that it's important to at least give you some idea of the weaknesses and the strengths of these three positions so that you're at least aware of this uh, in the sermon today. 
But how do they respond to <clears throat> begin uh, the, uh, the starting point of 445, 444 uh, BC, and then move forward 483 years to 38 to 39 AD? Well, <clears throat> they take the 483 solar years that are based upon the pattern of the sun and they convert them to lunar years based upon the, uh, the pattern of the moon and come up with a date of uh, basically what they claim is the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ in 32 AD. <clears throat> lunar years have 11 days uh, fewer in them than solar years. Now, I wouldn't outright dismiss this as an impossibility, but I would simply say, once again, they don't take the, those same people who want to do that, transpose <coughs> the solar years to lunar years. They don't do that with the previous prophecy of the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Those they, they keep. They don't change those to lunar years. <coughs> And I would, I would simply ask the question, why would God give this time of uh, 483 years in solar years just to have people change them to lunar years? Why didn't he just give them in lunar years to begin with? Uh, that, that seems odd and strange to me. And uh, furthermore, uh, those who hold this view don't take the last week the last seven years, they take those as actual uh, solar years. Uh, three, they divide them up into three and a half and three and a half, literal years, solar years. So why do they take the 483 years and convert them from solar years to lunar years, but not the last seven years, the last week? Again, I, I don't think that that uh, makes that position <clears throat> very forceful. That's a weakness I see in that particular position. And so of the three starting points, it seems to me, in my judgment, in trying to <clears throat> present the, um, the evidence in a, in a very cursory way, brief way, it seems that the second option that I presented, that is the first edict of Artaxerxes to Ezra in 458 to 457 is the most likely option. By moving, again, 69 weeks, 483 years from that period of time, it brings us to 26 to 27 AD, which is, again, according to many chronologists, the time of Christ's baptism by John the Baptist. The question is also asked, um, why is there, before we move on to the second question, why is there in Daniel 9.25 this division uh, of seven weeks, which is 49 consecutive years, and then 62 weeks, which is 434 consecutive years? Why is there that division? Why does it say um, seven weeks and 62 weeks? Why doesn't it just say 69 weeks? Why does it divide it up that way? <clears throat> well, let me offer this, which again, it's not original with me. I think that uh, conservative biblical scholarship uh, does, again, tend to take this this. Uh, view. The initial seven weeks or 49 years had to do with the restoring and building Jerusalem, as it's mentioned here in verse 25, street and wall. Actually, the wall, word wall there, it's the only time that Hebrew word is translated as wall. Um, and in your uh, uh, margin, you may have that it, uh, another rendering is ditch. And so it may, again, not refer to um, the actual wall having been completed that uh, 
but that there was a ditch, which again, where the wall was to go, you know, they would have to bury the wall. You don't just set a wall upon the ground. You have to bury the wall very deeply. <clears throat> and so it may refer to the ditch uh, there for the wall uh, that would be established. And so uh, the seven weeks that are mentioned, uh, first of all, the 49 years, would have to do with uh, that period of, of restoring, rebuilding, uh, the, um, the Jerusalem, uh, bringing uh, ultimately to completion by the end of that 49, uh, those 49 years, uh, bringing to completion the restoration of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and it says that this would occur in Daniel 9.25, it says that it would occur even in troublous times. And that is exactly what we find as we read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that all of the attempts and endeavors of the Jews to rebuild uh, the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, <clears throat> were met with opposition. Uh, were met with opposition by, by kings, were met with opposition uh, by those in surrounding uh, nations, uh, who did not want to see Jerusalem rebuilt, did not want to see the temple rebuilt, uh, were, were met also by way of opposition from within Israel, uh, by way of their own forgetfulness as to why were they there in the first place. They were more concerned about, and this is what uh, Haggai, the prophet, as he's uh, preaching to them, that's what he's preaching about. You've forgotten basically the reason God delivered you out of Babylonian captivity. You're more concerned with building your house than you are with building God's house. And then other problems uh, that uh, uh, came up, as we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they, they had... Uh, in many instances, many of the leaders within Israel that had returned from Babylonian captivity had intermarried uh, with uh, women and heathen nations around them. And this was uh, a violation of God's covenant with his people that they were not to do so. And so again, there were various uh, uh, Trouble, uh, troubles, various um, ways in which conflicts arose during that period of time uh, that to one degree or another hindered the speedy um, rebuilding and restoration of the temple and of Jerusalem. And so that, that fits in very well with that first seven weeks. And then immediately following the 434 years, the remaining 62 weeks, adding up to 69 weeks, unto Messiah the Prince, uh, was simply the period after that. And in that period of time, uh, we'll, in chapter, Daniel chapter 11, we'll get to this, but during that, those 62 weeks, uh, we will see once again how Antiochus Epiphanes uh, and Daniel 11 becomes an archenemy during those 434 years or 62 weeks until, again, Messiah the Prince. So there were various notable events happening in those 434 years. But again, I don't think that we need to or should separate them, the seven weeks from the 62 weeks, as if you know there's some huge gap of time in between those two uh, blocks of time. I believe they follow consecutively one year after the other, but it's simply noting how long it would take to restore uh, the temple and Jerusalem, the first seven weeks, 49 years, and then thereafter would be the time until uh, Messiah the Prince. So now we come, and this we'll not spend as much time on, but uh, we come to when the second question, when did Messiah the Prince make himself known publicly? When Gabriel revealed unto Daniel that these 69 weeks of years or 
483 consecutive years will be unto the Messiah, the Prince. This tells the prophecy, it tells us that this prophecy is really all about Jesus Christ, Messiah, the Prince. And uh, the fact that in the next verse, in verse 26, it says that Messiah shall be cut off and uh, so again this passage is about the lord jesus about messiah now jesus uh, is both messiah that is anointed one that's what messiah means and in, in, it's a hebrew the hebrew form uh, but it means anointed one and he's called that in the old testament not only here as he called Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, but he's also um, called the anointed one in Psalm 2. Verse 2, you'll recognize this as well. In Psalm 2, verse 2, it speaks of the Lord and his anointed, meaning Jesus. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is, against his Messiah. So Jesus, again, in the Old Testament, is the anointed one. He is Messiah. Likewise, in Isaiah 61.1, a prophecy concerning Jesus who was to come. <clears throat> it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me, there's the word, uh, it's used as a verb, not as a noun, hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. And so the anointed one was anointed. And that is again referring to Jesus in the Old Testament. But also in the New Testament, which again the word uh, Christ is used most often, which means anointed one, uh, we, for, for example, find in Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 16 through 21. I won't read the entire uh, passage there. But basically here, the Lord Jesus goes to Nazareth, goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and uh, takes up the book of Isaiah, turns to this particular passage that I've just read back in Isaiah 61.1, Concerning the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. And he reads that same passage, Jesus does, from Isaiah 61.1. And then he says, after he reads that very passage, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me, he, uh, it says in, uh, in that same passage in Luke 4, and he began, he put down the, the, the book of Isaiah, he sat down, and he began to say unto them, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. I am the anointed one, Jesus is saying. Uh, in John 1, verses 41 through 42, uh, here it speaks of Andrew uh, going and finding his brother Simon and bearing testimony concerning Christ. It says, he first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, notice, we have found the Messiah." which is being interpreted the Christ and brought him to Jesus. Uh, I know that probably for us this is uh, pretty obvious, but I, again, I just want to give to you these verses because there are those who don't believe that Messiah the Prince is Jesus. Um, they refer Messiah the Prince to a high priest or, or to Cyrus, um, uh, or, or, you know, to various, there are various other explanations, but I want to show you, you know, that the New Testament confirms that unto Messiah, the Prince, is Jesus, and who it's speaking of, the New Testament confirms that. In John 4, verses 25 through 26, the woman at the well, the woman saith unto him, unto Jesus, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. I am the Messiah. I am Christ. Then uh, one last one is Acts 10, 37 through 38. 
this is Peter preaching to Cornelius and, and uh, the, the house that was gathered there to hear uh, Peter proclaim the truth. This is what Peter says, That word I say you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So he was anointed. That's what Messiah means. Messiah, the prince, the anointed one. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament teaches. Um, and so, basically, um, the word Christ in the New Testament is used 599 times. It means anointed one. How many times does, do we have to hear that Jesus is the anointed one that we say, he's the one that's being referred to. He's the one being prophesied about Daniel 9, 25, unto Messiah or Christ, the Prince. Likewise, Jesus is given the title of prince in the Old Testament. In fact, this very same word that's used for prince in Daniel 9.25 is used of Christ. The same word is used of Christ in Isaiah 55.4, where it says, again, a prophecy of Christ to come. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. The word leader there is the same word as prince, the same Hebrew word. He's been given as a prince and commander to the people. So again, the Old Testament uses uh, the word that's used here for uh, prince in reference to Christ in Isaiah 55, 4, as in Daniel 9, 25. And in Isaiah 9, 6, it calls Christ the prince of peace. Now, it doesn't use the same word for prince, the same Hebrew word for prince as is used in Daniel 9.25, but a synonym uh, for that. Is Jesus called a prince in the New Testament? Again, uh, Acts 3.15, the Jews, Peter claims, killed the prince of life, the prince of life. Revelation 1.5 Jesus Christ is the prince of the kings of the earth. So this prophecy in Daniel 9.25, I submit to you, clearly points to Messiah the prince, Jesus Christ, who brought to pass all the events that were mentioned in verse, those six events or purposes mentioned in the previous verse in Daniel 9.24, he brought those to an end. He brought them to pass. And so the 69 weeks, or the 483 years, beginning with the decree of Artaxerxes in 458-457 BC, moving 483 years, brings us to Messiah the Prince. But an amazing prophecy. Now, I want to make this point before we get to the application. There is generally one of two events that conservative biblical scholars have pointed to as being the ending Point, the terminus ad quem of the 69 weeks, the, the ending of the 483 years. So it begins, if it begins with the, the edict of Artaxerxes in 458 to 457, goes, unto, for, uh, goes forward 483 years, what event does it bring us to? Well, there are those who uh, believe that it brings us to the public triumphal entry of Jesus Christ just before his death in approximately 31 to 32 AD. Indeed, Jesus was proclaimed by the multitudes at that time to be the son of David, 
to be the king of Israel. Both of these titles would indeed point to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. This ending point, uh, however, goes along with that last option of where to start, which we already pointed out takes us beyond the death of Christ by several years and then you know, tries to make allowance by changing solar years into lunar years. So this particular point uh, of ending at being the public ent uh, triumphal entry of Christ goes together with that particular view that I, I think is weak uh, to, to begin with. So this view, I'd say, possibility, but I believe there are significant problems uh, with, with, the, with the view. But the second option for the ending point of the 69 weeks with the 483 years is the public baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, at which time Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit when the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. Uh, and the year, again, fits very well with the second option, the first edict of Artaxerxes uh, in 458, 457, going forward, 483 years, 26 to 27 AD. It was at uh, Christ's baptism that John the Baptist even states that uh, Jesus was made manifest at that time to Israel. In John 1.31, John says, I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. So let me summarize uh, what the angel Gabriel, I believe, prophesied in Daniel 9.25 before a couple points of application. So this is a summary and interpretation all in one, uh, as far as uh, uh, how I would understand uh, the, uh, Daniel 9.25. From the issuing of a word or edict by the Persian king Artaxerxes in 458 to 457 BC, until Messiah the Prince is baptized by John the Baptist and anointed by the Holy Spirit in 26 to 27 AD, 69 weeks of years, or 483 consecutive years, would pass. The first seven weeks of years, or 49 years, would be spent in restoring and building Jerusalem, ecclesiastically, politically, and architecturally, during times of great hardship and trials, from uh, problems within and problems uh, without, outside as well. Two points of application. First of all, I want to note that reformation and restoring what has perhaps been lost uh, through time by way of truth, uh, by way of faithfulness and obedience to the Lord uh, doesn't happen overnight. Reformation does not happen overnight. It doesn't happen without there being difficulties. Whether that's reformation in my own personal life, it's going to happen with difficulties. We call it sanctification or reformation. Reformation in your family. Reformation in the church. Reformation in a city, reformation in a state, reformation in a nation. None of these are going to happen overnight and without difficulty. It didn't happen then. It happened through troublous times, very difficult times. And many times, I believe, God's people just didn't think it was, didn't think it was going to happen. They were so, so many delays, so many hindrances and obstacles that were in the way. But God stirred up the hearts of his people through his ordinances, through faithful officers, faithful priests, faithful officers like Zerubbabel, faithful priests like Joshua, the high priest, faithful prophets like that of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, 
God stirred up the hearts of his people to persevere until Reformation was completed. And it was completed. They did complete after those, 40, those seven weeks or those 49 years. Zechariah reminds us about this very issue and how we are so prone to want to give up because it's hard, because it's difficult to throw in the towel, because Reformation doesn't happen overnight. Zechariah reminds us it's not by might nor by strength or power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, this is how Reformation ultimately, that's the reason Reformation occurs, because the Holy Spirit brings it. It's not due to our ability to persevere or to be faithful. It's due to, to the Holy Spirit, and so we need to recognize that. So let us not grow weary in well-doing. For the Lord promises we shall reap if we faint not, if we don't give up. Reformation, just like sanctification, comes slowly and gradually. We so often want other people to change. And God says, I want to change you first. And God wants to begin with us. And so, when we talk about reformation, when we talk about sanctification, let's begin with ourselves. Let's begin with our own church and move forward. And the second point of application is this. This prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is unto Messiah the Prince. That period of time is unto Messiah the Prince. We have to keep that ever before us. That Reformation is always unto Jesus Christ. He must always be our goal, not simply to change our lives. He must be our goal that we are being sanctified according to his image, not just because we change some habits, not because we just change the way we talk or the way we act. That's better, I suppose, than not changing in those areas, but that's not, that's not looking to Jesus, simply to say, if I make a few changes here or there, that'll be good enough. No. It has to be unto Jesus, unto Messiah the Prince, unto his glory, unto his gospel, unto his word and his commandments. Jesus is the one who builds and reforms his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. Discouragement, dear ones, will turn to hope when our eyes are upon Jesus. Discouragement will turn to futility and despair when our eyes are not upon Jesus and only upon ourselves. No amount, dear ones, of evil, no amount of power, strength, on the part of the mighty, the rich in this world, no amount of what they may have will prevent Jesus from bringing about a glorious reformation in which Israel as a nation and all nations will come to him and serve him as Messiah the Prince. This is the promise we have in Revelation eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us not therefore speak or act like the Jews who had the same prophecies, who saw all the miracles, who heard the teaching of Messiah, but rejected him. Let us not be like them. We may not formally reject him, 
But we need to ask ourselves, am I practically rejecting him by the way I act, the way I speak, the desires of my own heart? I may not say I reject Jesus Christ verbally or formally, but we can act like we do by not living for him, by not having him as the author and the finisher of our faith, looking unto him for the strength, the perseverance, everything we need to bring about reformation and sanctification in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in this nation. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. And though, Lord, in order to understand it, it becomes technical at, at times. Lord, may we not become weary because we want to know the truth, because we want to walk in obedience to thee, because we desire to know how thy word corroborates how the prophecies demonstrate and confirm that it is all inspired of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would not be those who formally profess thee with our mouths, but by our lives deny thee. Help us, our God, to be those who, who walk and desire to walk in faith and love and obedience to Jesus Christ. There is no greater object and goal that we can have in this life than Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.